This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. As we continue our series on cases we can't forget, we are absolutely delighted to be joined today by Kurt Eichholz. I've known Kurt for about 20 years. Kurt is a spine surgeon. He uh, originally started his career at Vanderbilt University and then was at St. Louis University. Now he's in private practice in St. Louis. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kurt, why don't you walk us through this case? We saw some of these pictures, and they're just absolutely fascinating. Sure, absolutely. So, um, I, uh, as you mentioned, I grew up in St. Louis, but I did my residency at University of Iowa in Iowa City. This was in the, you know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, early 2000s. So, um, I was, I was, University of Iowa was an amazing residency program and amazing state and that it had, you know, the university was the tertiary care center for the entire state of Iowa, which had a sparse population, but a very broad geographic region. Um, so we would get trauma from all over the state, um, but most of the trauma in Iowa was not, um, was mostly blunt trauma, uh, car accidents and uh, occasional farm accidents and, uh, you know, typically, uh, uh, older people who fell, those kind of things. So there was not a big knife and gun club. There was not a large uh, metropolitan areas throughout the, throughout the state. So the number of penetrating head injuries that we saw was very low. Um, however, early in my res- my junior year, so uh, at, at Iowa, we did um, uh, 18 months straight uh, on the university service as second and third years. Um, and early in my second year, um, we had a young man who presented, was flown in from uh, another hospital, uh, who had young, he was in his early 30s, had a penetrating injury to his head. So he had undergone, uh, he had had shot in his right head. I should say that better. Sorry about that. So he had suffered an injury in his right frontal region where he was shot in the head with a uh, pneumatic roofer's nail gun. So my understanding is that it was one of those uh, nail guns that was hooked up to an air compressor that would have a magazine of nails, you know, and uh, you put it on the roof to put shingles on, hit the trigger, and it would, you know, blow, blow these uh, nails in, into the roofing at high pressure. So, um, now, Dr. Uh, Eichholz, if I, if I could, um, just yeah, to kind yeah. of set the stage for our listeners, we, m- many of us, uh, many of us listening have been through the second year of residency and can put ourselves back in that position where you just barely know something, but you still, you're starting to grasp how much you don't know, but you've got the majority of the pager duty. So what, what time of day was it when this guy came in? Um, it was, it was late afternoon and he had been flown in from somewhere else. So it was never quite clear. You know, the, it was initially billed as found down. Um, so they're not sure exactly when it happened or to what extent. And the circumstances of the injury were always, were never really clear. So there was a lot of rumors that were going around as it junior resident, I was never, you know, talking to the authorities about what exactly happened. It was at one point billed as a potential suicide attempt, but that wasn't probably the case. uh, This wasn't a 2 a.m. call, but I don't know if you recall the circumstances of this, but do you know what what was the day like? What were you doing? Was it a busy day? Were you running around? You get, oh, there's another trauma that comes in or what was going on? So, I mean, I was, you know, as you said, on the typical junior resident call pager running between the ICU and the ER etc. And I don't know that they called me to tell me that it was coming. Most of the time, uh, when it was, it showed up in the ER, we just, you know, they call us, they say, we got a patient that's down here. And, uh, 
and I remember showing up and uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a remarkable sight in that, um, you know, he, he had this injury to his, to his head, but he was clearly uptunded, but it, it wasn't, you know, the, the, the head itself was, didn't look all that deformed or anything like that. So he had, uh, uh, you know, he had uh, places where the nails had gone in, but it, you know, as I was mentioning, so the, the nails that had gone in, it wasn't just one nail. He had 11 nails that were put into his skulls. So, um, which also kind of goes against a self-inflicted injury um, because you would think that you would stop well before 11 um, if you were doing that in a self-inflicted manner. So so, uh, you'd have to have a a large amount of willpower for that. So, so, you know, we initially got skull x-rays and then also CAT scan. And in addition to the penetrating injury, he also had a subdural on the right side. Now, the interesting thing was that most of these nails uh, stopped where the, where the nail head had actually, you know, hit the calvarium and stopped there. But two of the nails, actually penetrated through the calvarium and went way deep into the skull. So um, with one of them, you know, you can see, you know, one of them ended up clearly with the tip in the uh, left-sided contralateral temporal pole um, and, uh, you know, which were, which also created problems. Um, but obviously he was, he was obtunded um, and, but certainly still salvageable. I don't remember his exam, you know, this many years later, but um he was ultimately taken to the, you know, to the operating room emergently, where we initially did a, you know, did a large, you know, trauma flap, you know, turned a large skin flap, and then used a sterile pliers to remove uh, as many of those uh, nails as we could, um, and then turned a large, you know, craniectomy flap, uh, and then evacuated his uh, subdural hematoma. Now, at that point, you know, you're looking at the brain, but and he has multiple, you know, penetrating wounds into the, into the brain, but you don't know which one those two nails that were embedded deep went in. So at that point we, you know, clearly washed it out because it was obviously not a clean wound, um, closed up, left the bone flap out, which was obviously contaminated and took him to the ICU. So he, you know, we recovered a little bit over the next day or two, clearly he was going to survive the injury. But he still had two nails that were um, deep in his head. Um, so, at that time, what we did was we we did a, a stealth CT scan with fiducials, and then a day or two later, took him back to use image guidance to remove those two screws or two nails, I should say, that were embedded deep uh, deep in his brain. So, um, he recovered a little bit, uh, was in the ICU for a period of time, and then was on the neurosurgery floor where he clearly had deficits that included, you know, he was densely hemiplegic on the left side, um, but he was awake and alert. Um, Over the months that followed, he never really spoke, but I'm not 100% sure if that was an aphasia um, in that he was of Eastern European descent. He was either Croatian or Bosnian or some something like that. And it may have been that he may have been that he did not speak English. I'm not hundred percent sure, but he clearly would look at you and, you know, look like he was cognizant of the situation, but never spoke and never followed commands, but was extraordinarily purposeful during the, during his uh, post-operative course. So he, you know, recovered to a certain extent and um, would ultimately get 
transferred to a skilled nursing facility. Um, in the meantime, he developed hydrocephalus. So he would, he ended up getting a ventricular peritoneal shunt uh, during the acute phase. Um, if you've ever taken care of somebody with a VP shunt that doesn't have a bone flap in, obviously uh, adjusting the dynamics of the, of the shunt can be difficult and, 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 and that kind of thing. So, so we, so uh, we had several different uh, shunt malfunctions, et cetera, um, during that period of time. But, um, and ultimately we put his bone flap back on, which allowed his shunt to be much more regulated and, uh, and secure. So he would be on the ICU floor or be on the, on the neurosurgery floor, I should say. Um, and was with those two nails that went into his temporal, temporal lobes. Um, my thought is that he actually probably had Kluver-Busey syndrome, which is, um, go back to medical school, um, bilateral amygdala damage can cause people to have um, um, impulsiveness, uh, hyperoral and hypersexual uh, behavior. So in many cases, he would um, need to be restrained because he was very young and healthy and muscular. Um, he would uh, get out of bed frequently at that time. Uh, the hospital had many double occupancy rooms, so he would be disruptive to other patients' care. They tried to put him in single occupancy rooms when possible. Um, and in many cases, they, and they, he was one of the few patients where they actually put this restraint system that was a kind of like a children's playpen that went over the bed to keep him from getting out of bed and pulling lines out and, and that kind of stuff. And in, and frequently when he would, he would frequently end up masturbating um, while he was, you know, in, in his, in his hospital room, which would go along with the hypersexuality of the Kluver-Fusey type syndrome. So um, he ended up with his shunt um, and ended up getting placed to various nursing homes and uh, skilled nursing facilities, but obviously was not an ideal patient for a nursing home in rural Iowa, where most of their patients are probably geriatric without, you know, closed head injuries like that. So in many cases, he would bounce back to the university because they, you know, they were worried that he had mental status changes or that his shunt was malfunctioning and those kind of things. So he spent a lot of the time when I was a junior resident on our service at the university. Uh, uh, I was going to say, as you're describing his course, and then especially the minute you mentioned a shunt, he sounds like a prime candidate to be a frequent flyer and, and someone who would keep bouncing back and bouncing back throughout your training. Um, did, you know, I, I don't want to step on anything if, if you're going to go there with the story, but in, in the course of your residency, did you ever see him improve? So he improved, he was about that good during his course of care. I mean, he was, he was awake, he was alert, he would feed himself with his right hand. Um, you know, he was obviously very purposeful with his non, with his, with his right hand. Um, I don't remember, he may have been ambulatory with physical therapy, but, you know, was never communicative. And again, I'm not sure, you know, if that was more neurologic or, you know, functional because of the language difficulty, but um, yeah, he was, he never was not institutionalized because of the, because of the injury. And the other issue that happened was that he, you know, never had any family during his course. So, his, you know, there's nobody that ever showed up at the hospital. He clearly must not have had next to kin or, um, anybody that, that uh, was involved. So 
ultimately he became a ward of the state, which I it, certainly at that time had never seen happen in, in my career. And, you know, it's extremely unusual. So he became a ward of the state of Iowa, which they assumed his care both financially and, and otherwise. And, but since he had no next of kin, the, the state decided to, you know, had to appoint a durable power of attorney for healthcare, which if you're the state of Iowa, you have physicians who are state employees, such as the faculty members at the University of Iowa. So it actually was uh, Dr. Riken, one of our faculty members at the time, who's uh, now chairman at Dartmouth, who was who somehow, and I obviously don't know the logistics of it, was appointed his durable power of attorney for healthcare. So when he would come back to the university with a possible shut malfunction that would need to be revised, I would have, and the way that they we ran call back in those days was that um, shunt malfunctions were taken care of by whoever, whichever faculty member was on call. So if, even though uh, the patient needed a shunt malfunction that might have been revised by another faculty, I had to call the you know, hospital operator and get, a, and get an informed consent that was recorded by the operator from Dr. Riken as his durable power of attorney. So oh. it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was rather unusual. I'm calling one faculty member, and I have to explain on the recorded call the risks and benefits of shunt provision to my faculty member right. so that he can give me permission uh, to do a shunt revision with one of his partners, one of our other faculty members. So, Did Dr. Reichen ever have to consent for a revision that he would perform? Um, he might have, yeah. And then and then it, we wouldn't have to do a recorded phone call. So then, then right. I have to have him say, yeah, I, I believe he had to do one, but I can't remember. He had... The, the patient ended up with several shunt revisions over, over time until we put his bone flap in. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and I, but I do specifically remember calling Dr. Riken to do a, do a phone consent, telling him that, yeah, one of, one of your partners is doing, you know, you're not on call, but I got to get up informed consent from you. So it was a, a little bit comical, you know, consenting your faculty member for, for a patient that uh, he was, that he's now technically the next of kin or durable power attorney for. So, yeah. yeah, we always joke about when you, you know, when someone needs a shunt, you buy that patient for life, but that's a, that's a different level when you become their power of attorney. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Well, that's a really fascinating story. And, and there's, I mean, aside from, from the sheer uh, drama of it and, and, you know, we'll share for our listeners, the, the picture, the skull x-rays that you sent us, showing the injury at presentation, which is just visually uh, stunning. But I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. And there are a number of things that that jump out at me. I guess my first question that we can just address quickly is almost technical at a technical level. But did you get any vascular imaging before you went in to take the screw or the the nails out? I don't believe we did. um, Because he had a he had acute subdural with shift. And uh, got it. Yeah. So Basically, it was going to be, you know, there we knew that he probably had damage to one of his bridging veins, which was called the subdural. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable. It, if you look at the 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 uh, nails, did not necessarily go. They were they were all kind of above the above the clivus. Um, so it you know certainly could have been, and they were all you know frontal lobish frontal lobe in location. So, right. um, but at that time, you know, he was he had a, an acute subdural with shift and was herniating. So, um, you know, it was one of those things where we're going to have to 
take it out and get what we get, you know, or see what see what ends up being the answer. So, and he didn't he didn't have a major vascular injury from what I remember. It was mostly you know, uh, you know, multiple penetrating. It's it's remarkable that he didn't have a vascular injury considering how many nails he had in in that uh, in, in that location. So. Yeah, and that, that would be my my worry is that if it was tamponading something, you pull it out and then you you've got a whole mess in front of you. But like you yeah. said, if he had an acute subdural with with mass effect, you got to take him regardless. Um, yes, sir. So I I wonder, you know, you're a, you're a PGY two at the time, and as you said, he's a young man. He was obtunded but salvageable, and so you all decided to take him and treat him. And now we we heard the whole story of his outcome. You know, these days, many people, at least from what I've read and the people I work under and train with, would almost shooting from the hip knee jerk, say penetrating injury goes cross court, no surgical intervention. And this this gentleman had multiple penetrating injuries, two of which they weren't gunshot wounds, they weren't bullets, but they were a penetrating missile that went contralateral. And he was still decompressed and treated. And, and we see the outcome of this, which he's alive, as you said, he was somewhat functional, he could feed himself, but institutionalized for the rest of his life. What are your thoughts about the quality of this outcome? And I guess looking back at yourself as a PGY2, standing there at bedside, looking down at him, do you think the right thing was done to treat him? Well, so I mean, ultimately, he bounced around, as we said, many times, and was on the service on and off for 16 months. Um, ultimately one other day when I was holding the call pager and it was in about November, so about 16, 17 months after his injury, uh, I was called as a junior resident because he was coding. So as you know, running around between the ICU and the ER, your patient up here is coding. I show up as the, as a, as the PGY2 neurosurgery resident, but you know, you already have the medicine and ICU doctors are doing chest compressions and pushing ACLS drugs and all that kind of stuff. And I remember we coded him for probably 20, 20 minutes or more. And I actually remember mm-hmm. calling Dr. Reichen, who had been the majority of the, been involved in the majority of his care because we'd invested a lot of time and effort, but it was pretty clear at that time that he probably, you know, probably had a PE or something like that, that, you know, ended up coding. So he passed away, you know, 16, 17 months after his injury. So, mm. um, I mean, I don't necessarily, you know, I mean, certainly in, in retrospect, I mean, you know, we, you know, he, I mean, when you're sitting there acutely with a patient who has that injury and, and an appropriate exam, you know, you do the right thing and, you know, right. yeah, you, you know, you may end up, it's, it's, and it, and it was also that he didn't have any family. So you're going to work under presumed consent. What would a patient want done for himself as right. opposed to when, you know, a patient brings in a, you know, an, an elderly patient and says, look, I'm, I know my grandmother and she wouldn't want to have this done. So we're not going to do it. You know, in this case, you know, you had just the patient and an exam and nothing else. So you know, do the right thing. And um, I think that, you know, he, he got as good a care as he, as he would get anywhere in the country um, and just had an outcome that, you know, doesn't necessarily, you know, isn't that necessarily surprising considering, you know, the devastating injury that he had. Yeah. And and just for, you know, the majority of our listeners are within the field, obviously, but for some of our listeners that are either in college, medical school or or related fields, but not within this space, uh, I don't want to sound callous and say, oh, do you regret saving this young man's life? But this is a discussion we frequently have with uh, family members of patients who have devastating injuries where we say, yes, 
we can intervene and keep this person alive, but the quality of that life, the quality of their personality, their neurologic function, the, everything that makes them who they are will be profoundly and permanently effective, uh, affected. And so frequently we, we have that discussion with people about, do you want to do a treatment that prolongs life, but doesn't really preserve the character or the personality? And, and so I guess you picked this story because it stuck with you, obviously. And so I wonder if how did this experience so early in your training impact the way you would approach those situations, discuss cases like that with families or even in your own life and, and thinking about your own wishes for yourself or family members, if God forbid you ever faced a situation like that? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things I never really thought about until now was what if, you know, once he became a ward of the state, what if the, what if Dr. Reichen had said, you know what, I don't think we're going to do more on this patient and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Now, granted, Dr. Reichen didn't know the patient before that none of us knew the patient before the injury. So, um, but again, in that case, just like you got to do it when you're seeing him, you know, for the very first time in the ER, you guys, you know, do the right thing in terms of what is the best thing, yeah. you know, for the patient. So what it helped, you know, for, for me, I, I think of that case often when you're seeing a, seeing a patient who has an injury and making sure that, you know, family members understand, look, you know, can I, can I do that? I can do a surgery and take out this, you know, blood clot or whatever it is. And I can technically save the patient, but the patient will not have a, a functional recovery and not be the same person that you, that you knew before. And, you know, making sure that they understand and, you know, having worked at different hospitals in different, you know, different locales, you know, there are some families that are, that are, when they come to you, they're like, look, you have to do everything you can to save my family member, even if she is a vegetable or even if she is non-functional. Uh, and there's others that are much more like, look, she wouldn't want to go through this, even if she was, in a, you know, especially if there was a low chance of having a functional recovery. I think that that's that's what I've kind of tried to, you know, delineate with patients is, I can can you save them? Sure, but will they have a functional recovery, which is different than will they be alive? Yeah. Right, that, and this is I think an incredible and profound example of just that outcome where t you know typically in my experience where where I you know in my training when we have these conversations and the family members still say do everything, the result is someone who as you said is a vegetable trach, peg, uh, requiring like a long-term care for the remainder of, of their life. And, but this story that you've shared is someone who didn't go down that road, but is still profoundly altered, a, a moving awake human organism that is a completely different person inside. And that is just such a, a stark living example of exactly that conversation that we always have with the family members. So I really appreciate you coming on to share that with us. And I can understand how living through that early in your training and carrying that memory forward would affect your approach to those conversations. Um, so Dr. Eichholz, thanks so much for coming on the neurosurgery podcast and sharing the story of that case. Well, thank you very much. I mean, you guys are doing a great job with the podcast and we listen all the time. And, uh, and the other thing is, you know, the University of Iowa is just an amazing training program that you know, I, I was lucky enough that I've worked with Dr. Van Gilder and, you know, now Dr. Howard. And uh, it's just, couldn't have been a better place for me to train. And I think that, you know, the care there is second to none. So I appreciate the opportunity to share the case with you. Thank you so much.
Well, that was just a fascinating interview, uh, JP. Uh, you know, shout out to Kurt Eichholz. Um, I first got to know him in the spine section where he was helping to lead the Washington Committee and payer response committees. One of the reasons why our meetings are expensive is because it supports all the amazing advocacy that we have uh, in medicine, which is, is just a fraction of other groups like lawyers and plumbers and whatnot. But it's very important because it helps to make sure that we are represented in our in our uh, public sphere and how we get paid for for the good work that we do. So, and and also the shout out to Iowa. I think uh, you know our own uh, the b- beloved Vignesh Kumar's from Iowa. Uh, it's a fantastic program, and Tim Riken's a good friend of mine. What what a great guy! But JP, I want to get into the, the the meat of this story because this is such a fascinating um, concept of neurological disease and society, and the images. Just I mean, you look at the pictures of those X rays; it's like wow. Um, what what are your thoughts as you see this? I mean, you see patients kind of like this in the ER now, right? You're in the emergency room. You go down. You're the frontline person, and you see these really horrific, life changing traumas. What what goes through your head? Right. Um, that that I think is what was most interesting about this story is, as you said, just the visual, the the shocking visual of it. And I and I will say, when we started this series, one of the ideas and the impetus behind it was to tell a story that had an impact on the neurosurgeon, shaped their practice, shaped their career and their thinking. But on the other hand, also was just to have a good story. And this one, like you said, there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot where you could talk about the morality, the ethics, the societal role about caring for this patient that became a ward of the state. But also, this is just the kind of fascinating, once in a lifetime, incredible drama that we get to see in a field that kind of treads the fine line between life and death and neurologic injury. But that that being said, um, you're right. We we all on the front lines of neurosurgery, as you were in your training, and now as I am, uh, thankfully getting further and further away from junior residency, we do get called down to see these people. I, I have personally never seen someone who took nails to the head. I've seen knives to the head. We, we've all seen open injuries. And I think there's definitely a desensitization that happens the more and more people like this that you see. And in particular, as I kind of talked about with Dr. Eichholz, when you're a junior resident, you're holding the pager, you're up all night. There's not just a desensitization to the visual experience and to seeing patients who are injured like this over and over again. There's a physical desensitization because you've been awake for so long, you're kind of walking around somewhat numb that you, you have the capacity to walk in and see what to anyone else in any other setting would be a horror, but that numbness and that, uh, that capacity to just keep going, get through the day, get through the consult kind of allows you to not emotionally process what you're looking at and instead just get done what you have to get done. Yeah. Now, now, a quick sidebar. I know we don't give CME credits for listening to this podcast. There are podcasts like that, but I feel like we kind of should. And if the ACCME wasn't such a tyrannical bureaucratic body that I've had to deal with over the years for our societies, I feel like, you know, like, like Kurt breaks into the discussion about Kluver Busey syndrome. And, you know, like, Talking about Paul Busey, who is a Chicago neurosurgeon, oh, yeah. one of the most famous, right? He was a pediatric neurosurgeon. He had he had done these studies on primates, I believe, right? Right. 
Yeah, fascinating stuff. And so one of the great things about neurosurgery is, you know, you, you, we all learned about Phineas Gage in med- medical, medical, medical school in, in, in Boston and how, the, how he had an injury to his head and changed his personality. But I think Kurt really dives into that, the, the mystery of the neurological illness and what that means. And I want to come back to something you had wanted to do, which was to do a podcast on consent. And so you, I think what you said in one of our earlier podcasts is we are consenting people um, to operate on the organ, meaning the brain, that is actually the one that's impaired, that is the one deciding to give the consent, right? Right. And it's such, an, such a fascinating concept. What did you think about um, Tim Riken having to take, I guess, conservatorship or something like that of, of this gentleman? Yeah, that, that that's exactly what was so fascinating to me about it because, you know, as as you quoted, I, I previously had that thought about how when people agree to undergo neurosurgery, they're not just agreeing to have a procedure on their liver, on their stomach, on their ankle, but like you said, it, it's the organ that provides consent uh, that they're consenting to have manipulated. So there's that deeper level to it, and you can you know, the the circles within circles keep going if you think about it too much. But this is a scenario where I think the the more interesting perspective eventually within this story from Dr. Eichholz, at at least in terms of the consent process, comes from the surgeon's end. Because now you have legal responsibility, moral and ethical responsibility to make decisions that are, quote, in the best interests of this patient who has no capacity to make decisions but you're also the one delivering the care. So when we when we talk about informed consent process, you know, you're supposed to explain the risks and benefits, the alternatives, et cetera, and then the patient or the representative makes that decision with the information. But now the very person who would perform the surgery and whatever biases they might bring to the table, whatever inner demons about, oh, is this futile? Oh, do I wanna come in and do surgery in the middle of the night? Oh, do I, am I one of those do everything people or am I one of those, let's be reasonable and conservative and management people? The surgeon himself has to decide whether or not his ward should receive surgery from his own hands. That's just such a strange and circuitous situation. I can't imagine being in that position. Well, you know, I'm getting old and briny. And as you know, from coming to my clinic, you know, I tell it like it is, and I consider myself highly ethical, but it also makes me, but I'm also very disagreeable in the process. And and I, I've really come to value the words of Roberto Harris. We had we, we, we were talking this morning, and Roberto, who who is just an amazing um, icon of our field, used to always say, and I, and I have to be careful because there's a lot of, you know, asshole lawyers and and you know, people who don't know anything about what we do that are quick to judge what we say because they, they've not, I'm going to use a quote, like they don't have the lived experience of a neurosurgeon, right? right. Like they, don't even, they don't even have the contextual basis to have a discussion with us. But Roberto Harrow says this, and if you don't know what we do, then you'll be like, huh? That doesn't make any sense. But if you do what we do, you'll be like, oh yeah. And he says, there is no such thing as informed consent. And, and, and he doesn't even mean that nobody has complete knowledge, right? That you didn't, you, there's no way to explain to patients fully, objectively, in an unbiased way that really presents it like it really, really is scientifically and we know everything, right? He doesn't mean that, which is a truism. He means that you have to tell the patient what the right thing is to do. And so this usually comes up in a discussion where, just like this, there was a case done where the patient 
I, I don't believe in futility in the sense that we know it's going to be futile, but it looks really bad. And yeah. then we make a decision to take an action, for example, to do a surgery and the patient's vegetative. Kind of like in this, this patient wasn't vegetative, but you asked the question about do you regret even operating and saving the life potentially to have a miserable existence? And the patients can't possibly know that, right? Like, and so he says, you have to tell them what to do. And he's not meaning it like in a paternalistic way. He's meaning it in the sense that you can just sit there and hem and haul and go, we could do this or you could do this or you could do this. And then how does a person make a decision, right? Is there, is there, I mean, what do you think, JP? You're getting started. Is there really, as you're talking to a patient or their family, a situation where they truly, truly are making a truly informed, and I don't even know what that means, an informed decision, right? Right. Well, you know, if you're old and briny, I'm young and becoming brined. And I'll tell you that in when I was going through medical school, that was kind of approaching the peak in the heyday of this, you know, anti-paternalistic, anti-classical ideas of doctor-patient relationship and the height of you just provide information and, and let the patient decide. And that always bristled with me because it, it's one thing when you're sitting in a classroom and your professors are, are telling you, oh, we provide information and guidance and then the patient or their family decides. But then you go out there and you actually talk to patients and you talk to families and all they want you to do is tell them the right move because they're not just coming to you like a mechanic and saying, oh, can I have a pill? Oh, can you fix this? They're coming to you as an expert for advice and for guidance. And, and it's, you know, we don't just provide the work of our hands. We provide the work of our minds as well. And that means giving them the advice, giving them our recommendations, right? And I, I think that the idea of informed consent, while it's a lovely term, and, and maybe this is something that uh, Dr. Hiros is getting at, is that one, as you pointed out, we rarely know what we're talking about in a real sense. We have our intuition, we have our heuristics, we have our data that is often limited, and we have our personal experiences. Um, but more importantly, to, to try and imagine that we could educate or explain uh, something to a patient to such an extent that they're informed to the way that we are, that that's inherently uh, flawed, right? Because it takes however many decades for you, Dr. Wang, to understand the risks and benefits of a procedure you're offering. So by definition, it should take the patient just as many decades to understand it, right? So even if we say, oh, I, I informed the patient, they expressed understanding, how much could they really understand if it takes you that many decades to understand it yourself? Yeah. And when we move to the more elective space, it gets even harder. Like this case was not that difficult. As as Dr. Eichholz is saying, like, I mean, death is irreversible. So you saved a life. And if the person doesn't want to live later, that's kind of, I mean, I'm not in favor of suicide, but it, that's up to them. You can't bring someone back to life, right? right? But it gets really hard in, say, spine or functional neurosurgery, where there is so much gray area in terms of, okay, well, now we're talking about this amount of quality life improvement versus this um, possibility of a complication. And the thing that patients don't get, and this is really where it's gotten difficult during coronavirus. You can, I, I was listening to Joe Rogan and like, I think just like him, it's like, if I had to be the AI to invent something that would let me analyze every human immediately and know who they are, the, the COVID pandemic did it. Like you can tell the kind of people you're dealing with just by like how they wear their mask, when they wear it, who got vaxxed, how they express their views on coronavirus. It becomes very apparent. And the thing about this is, is that what most Americans lack, and not businessmen and not surgeons, 
but they lack a understanding of statistics. And these are essentially decisions that are made on statistical heuristics, right? Uh, heuristics, I'm sorry, heuristics, which is that, you know, there's a probability of this outcome or that outcome and, and the other, you're going to get one of these outcomes in your universe. If you lived in the metaverse, you could pick different outcomes, but we don't. So, so we try to guide people in their decision making. And I tell people that I don't know what's going to happen. So I can't make that decision. But what I would ask is that it be philosophically consistent. Hmm. And you guys get at this in the interview, which is something like this. And I'll give the, the most black and white example. If I see a Christian scientist who has a malignant tumor in the spine, I'm not going to offer surgery. They don't believe in surgery. I mean, I can bring it up, but they don't, I don't offer Jehovah's Witness a blood transfusion. Like they've right. made that decision. Now, whether they want to change that decision right before surgery, that's up to them. But philosophically consistent. The other example would be someone who's had 15 plastic surgeries and has has a giant uh, cervical disc herniation causing myelopathy, and they say, I'm afraid of surgery. And the answer is, no, you're not afraid of surgery. Right. You just don't understand what's going on here, right? Because you're being inconsistent. And, and to me, that's what I spend most of my clinic time talking to people about is, what is the philosophical consistency? Like you said in this interview, if someone had known who this man was, this Eastern European uh, construction worker, right? a roofer, right? Yeah. They would, they would know the right choice to make. And then I think um, just to actually call back to my conversation with Dr. Byrne on the previous episode, we actually got into a little bit exactly as you were just saying, where you're kind of selecting what universe you're going to live in. And when we talk to patients before surgery, as you said, especially in the elective space, we prognosticate and we say, I think that if we just let this thing keep going, X will happen. The tumor will get bigger and push on blank. Your disc herniation won't go away and your weakness will get worse, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to have this conversation with people where you say, trust me, I think this will happen probably or we can actively do a surgery now and decide what happens next. And then you do the surgery and hopefully they just get better and things go according to plan. But if you do the surgery and something untoward happens, if there's a complication, all of a sudden you're in this universe where you took a knife to a patient and now they're worse than they were before. And that's all they ever see. That's all they ever experience or live with. That's the history of their life now. And all of that prognostication about, oh, if we hadn't done the surgery, trust me, I swear you probably maybe would have been worse than this even. None of that is ever real. None of that is ever seen because we've chosen actively what universe and what path that patient goes down. And that, as, as you say, in the elective space, that becomes so much more important when you're having this discussion about consent. And that's why it's so difficult and, and it's so hard for people who, are, who don't do what we do to understand what we do. But it's also what makes neurosurgery the center of almost all medical drama. I mean, there, there isn't a week that goes by that I don't see a movie where neurosurgery comes up in some arena, right? It's like everywhere because people innately understand the compelling, dramatic um, and, and, and highly complex nature of what we do. And, and I, I'll point out to, to, you know, one of your mentors who you've interviewed for this podcast twice now, Rick Fessler, uh, who is, in my mind, Rick is one of the greatest teachers in academia of our time. And I think it stems from maybe the time he spent when he was in divinity school. 
because there is this, you know, we talk a lot about neurosurgeon scientists, neurosurgeon priests. There is this element of, well, you just don't know because the science is only going to take you so far. But the philosophy or almost like the religious experience of this is, is like, I've wanted to interview Eben Alexander on this podcast for a long time now. Eben writes about seeing angels and, and ghosts in the rooms of his patients and, and, and people laugh at it. But even Alexander, I mean, he's, he, he's a, he is another major figure on our field. And, and when you do this long enough, you start to wonder about these, um, the, these elements of, of spirituality and philosophy, which I think also makes this field so exciting, even after you've been in it for a decade or two or three or four, you know? I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, as you say, Dr. Fessler is a phenomenal teacher. And I think there is that element of, uh, call it spirituality, uh, a deep compassion and understanding, which, which I think is so crucial when you're dealing with, as we keep mentioning, with, when you're dealing with the nervous system and we're operating in a space of imperfect science and imperfect knowledge and understanding, I think anyone who works in this field even tangentially knows that expectations make reality and the way you frame things with patients, the way they expect or don't expect things to go, the way they interpret whatever outcome they get is oftentimes just as important, if not more than whatever physical intervention you can do for them. And I, I think, you know, the, the time when I was in Miami that I spent with you, Dr. Wang, in your clinic, you have a clear understanding of that and uh, use that I would say power, honestly, the power of the words that we say to people beyond just the surgery that we do, uh, not to your own benefit to make people happy and view you well, but honestly, to have better outcomes for people when you can contextualize any residual pain after surgery or their expectations that they're not going to wake up and feel perfect. It is a kind of manipulation and a kind of word game that you play with people. But if the result is a more positive outcome and a more positive experience, particularly when, when we're dealing with subjective symptoms like pain, then that just like taking up a knife and doing surgery, I think the, the psychology of talking to these people is to their benefit. And that's another facet of our job in treating their symptoms. Exactly. Well, I want to thank Kurt for coming on the podcast. Please check out the images online. They're really fascinating. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.